Are you ready to turn your investments into retirement income? Listen in as Jeremy Kyle and his guests reveal ways you can make smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions to achieve your ideal retirement. You will learn more about your money so you can feel better about your money and make better money decisions. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into a consistent income. And today we are excited to have Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion, and he's also written a few books, Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. And Daniel, we mentioned to you before for the, those listening, this is part of our series on the biggest risks to your retirement. And we think that you are the biggest risk to your own retirement, not you, Dr. Daniel Crosby, but you, the listener, the person getting ready to retire can make a lot of mistakes and we want to hopefully avoid those. And that's what you've been focusing on for years now. Yeah, absolutely. So to put some numbers to it, because I think this is pretty counterintuitive for most folks, they don't, they don't understand how, how they could be such an obstacle to their, to their investment success. I looked at uh, you know, different styles of funds over the last 50 years. And if you had taken $10,000 and put it in a value fund, right? A value investing fund, that 10,000 would have turned into $2.1 million over the last 50 years. Like pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, if you had put it in a growth fund, that 10,000 would have turned into 1.7. And yet the average investor didn't turn that 10,000 into 2 million or 1.7 million they actually turned it into 400,000. And the reason is all the human stuff that we're gonna talk about today, the messiness of human experience. So it's so funny, we spend so much time thinking about, you know, do I invest in this thing or that thing? And we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about our own ability to stick to a plan, our own ability to stay the course and, and how we really may be the biggest impediment to our own retirement success. Yeah, I've got a statement I tell people all the time. I think you might agree with it. Let me know if you don't, but it's control what you can control, protect what you cannot control. And so many people feel like investing is an area they can control. If only they could pick the right stock, the right mutual fund, invest at the right time. And we'll definitely talk about what you've gone through extensively in your books. These are great books, Laws of Wealth, The Behavioral Investor. We're gonna have links to to both of those because uh, I've enjoyed both of those. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about kind of investing piece, what people are doing to harm themselves investing. But part of control, which you can control, uh, we're talking to people that are retiring. There's some things that have popped up kind of in my experience. I'd love to get your perspective as someone that studies this all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly so I, I do agree with your statement. And you know, one of the things that we know from the, the psychological literature, I'll put on my shrink hat because that's what my PhD is in. There's something called learned helplessness. And when people try and try and try again to control something that's inherently uncontrollable, they sort of just give up and, and sort of pass out from exhaustion, so to speak. And so there's financial reasons to try and control the controllable, but there's also psychological reasons. I mean, trying to wrap your arms around something that's just inherently out of your power uh, is, is just really frustrating psychologically. So when you think about the things that you can control, I mean, you can control things like diversification. You can control things like your fees that you're paying. 
You can control things like whether or not you choose to work with an advisor, which has been shown to dramatically increase not only performance in the market, but but also happiness and a, and a host of lifestyle factors. Uh, and you can control your behavior, things like uh, in your working years, setting aside a little money every two weeks, uh, staying the course, being patient, being focused on other things besides watching every tick of the stock market. But you know what I find is my my number one chapter, my first chapter in the laws of wealth is you control what matters most. Because what I find is that like when people, you know, I travel a lot and when I'm on an airplane and, and people hear what I do for a living, they'll ask me questions like, is the president gonna pass XYZ bill? Mm -hmm. Or what's the Fed gonna do? Or, you know, what's gonna happen with the course of COVID? And, and all of these things that are inherently unknowable. And then, so, you know, we've got these things that people are always fo focused on these externalities when we know that what's predictive of whether or not they, they reach their financial finish line is the things that are actually within their control. Yeah, you got it. I wrote down how people can control what matters most. I was thinking through and prepping to be talking with you. And when it comes to retirement planning, I think there's three things that people can make matter and yet often make mistakes on. Love to get your feedback on them. The first one is just incorrect retirement date planning. I think if you ask a 55-year-old when you're going to retire, they'll tell you 65. They'll plan for it. And then when they're 65, you say, hey, when did, when did you retire? They're gonna tell you 62. That's what the averages show. So it's kind of interesting. It's really hard to get a 55-year-old to understand and let's plan for a, a retirement that would likely start a few years before they plan for it or they think it would be. It's also hard to get like a 60-year-old to say, to, to understand how their early retirement really affects their later, their later years. Like, that. you know, I'm just gonna retire a couple years early. I mean, the math on retiring at 60 versus 62 is just astronomically different. Like how do we get people to think about the, the retirement date when they might retire or how their choice of retirement date affects the rest of their life? Yeah, so one of the things that we are finding, <clears throat> one of the things that we're finding is when you ask people about their financial goals and you sort of ask that question like, hey, what are your financial goals? When do you wanna retire? This sort of thing. What you tend to get are really low quality answers that are what we'll call highly mimetic. So they're based on sort of social conventions. They're based on what other people are doing. So I think the default answer is uh, 65, right? Because that's when people retire, right? Whoever, whoever people are. And so one of the things that we're doing at Orion is we've, we've stopped asking about goals first and we've started asking about values because one of the things that we found is that values tend to be a lot more enduring than goals and they're they're not as mimetic right they're not as based on sort of following what other people are doing so let's say you get someone who has a value for freedom you say oh, okay your your value is freedom well what does that look like in terms of your retirement goal well then you might get the answer well hey i want to retire at 60 or 62 and then you can bring in the math, then you can bring in your financial planning wizardry and your calculators and all that and help them get a, get a better understanding of what that looks like. But part of the answer is I think we have to start with values and not goals because most people just don't know what their goals are. 
And there's, there's something called the end of history illusion. So if you think about, you know, Jeremy, you think about uh, what was, what was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, Jeremy, like, and you know, how different was the 20 years ago, Jeremy from, from today, Jeremy, you would go, oh, well, that guy was completely different, right? I mean, that guy had a different set of worries, a different set of ambitions, a different set of values and core beliefs. I've changed so much in, in that 10 or 20 years. And yet we, we routinely ask a 45-year-old, when do you want to retire? And they say, oh, 65. And what they do is they just project their 45-year-old self onto their 65-year-old self and go, oh, the, th- the things I'll want when I'm 65 are identical to the things I'll want today. And so I think we, uh, we cast our current self forward into the future indefinitely, even though when we look back even five or 10 years, we know that a lot has changed. And so I think we need to build retirement plans that honor this and respect growth and change and, and sort of human innovation and help our clients understand that like, hey, this is subject to change. And you know, your desires may change, your goals may change, you, you may change as a, as a person, and, and that may cause a change in your plan. You got it. And I like how you mentioned social convention as being a default option for a lot of people. And also how you're talking about projecting your future self. I think people sometimes, especially when they hit 65, they project out their future self into the into what they've seen around them. And they say, well, my, you know, my parents died at 80 or my aunt is 95 and can't move around that much. And there's the opposite end. This is my second one of what I think is a, a mistake people make going into retirement is they have incorrect longevity estimates, right? They, they have an incorrect, and there's studies, like most people get their true life expectancy off by about five, and they don't have a concept of something called tail risk. I mean, good luck there. That's a big fancy uh, math probability term where, well, yeah, you might have your life expectancy, but what if you live past it? And what are the consequences of living past it? And the, the, sum it up of how hard it is for people that uh, the the media, the news is really just doing a disservice to retirees because there's newspaper articles all the time that say, oh, today's life expectancy is 79. That's an estimate of a baby born today. And you weren't born yesterday, right? It's not about a 62-year-old and what they as a couple might experience. It's about what a scientist estimates for a baby born today. So how do we get people to think about longevity past, you know, just the standard, oh, people lived at 80 or my, my uncle died at, at 75 or that kind of stuff. Yeah, we have to sort of help people envision the world as a distribution of outcomes, right? Which is, which is not easy to do mm-hmm. because you're right. You know, if the average life expectancy is 79 or 81 or, or whatever it is, you know, that includes people who die in car accidents when they're 12, right? So, I mean, if you if you live to be 65 or 70, there's a very good chance that you're going to live to be to be 90 or 100. So you have to plan for sort of every eventuality. There's been some interesting research done on on salience, right? So one of the things that we understand is that right now is very salient, right? Like right now, Daniel wants what he wants. Like he wants a cheeseburger. He wants to go watch a movie. He wants to do whatever. And that's very real and very emotional to me right now. Well, 
80-year-old Daniel's going to want cheeseburgers too, but yet that's not very, you know, the, the image of, of a me 35 years from now is not very salient. It's not very vivid. So what we have to help people do is actually get into and create a story around different life paths and what they look like. And there was kind of some cool research done a few years ago that actually showed that people who had their faces put through age progression software were better about saving for the future uh, than those who had not been through a similar age progression with their photos. Uh, because what the age progression software did was it allowed you to sort of more viscerally and more really experience the reality of a, of a future self. So we have to help, we have to get people talking about the distribution of possible future selves in a real way that's impactful and not just falling back on actuarial tables that say, look, I'm going to croak when I'm 80 because that's just what people do. It doesn't work that way. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our five-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com. Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. Yeah, I, I was thinking the idea of age progression software as you're explaining it, and all of a sudden you mentioned it, so that's that's great. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this idea is going to help our next, uh, our third kind of um, mistake or issue that you have, people have faced in retirement, where they have an inability to compare a lump sum dollar amount to monthly income amounts. You know, we, we work with a lot of people that work for corporations for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. They still have a pension. And when they get a piece of paper that says, you want 400,000 right now or two grand a month for the rest of your life, how do they possibly make that decision? And then they just have to check a box, 30 days later, they can't even, you know, it's locked in, they're changed for the rest of your life. I'm wondering, I bet you that uh, age progression software will get them because they can think of themselves, 62 year old, you know, Jim can think of the boat he could buy with that. But uh, is he thinking of the 92 year old marry his wife and the 2000 a month she's not getting Right. That's that might be a helpful thing there. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we know about the about the behavioral uh, sciences is that we're two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain. <clears throat> so whenever we're sort of presented with something like this, we tend to look for upside before downside. But we need to consider both sides. Right. We need to say, OK. The $400,000 distribution was the upside of that. And then what am I giving up? And then on the $2,000 a month, what's the upside and, and, and what am I giving up? But really, this is a form of present bias. This is a form of, you know, conservatism, like I talk about, like taking the sure thing, the bird in the hand over the maybe, because, you know, I might get hit by a truck tomorrow. And then I, you know, I gave up all this money. But, you know, again, I think the way that we become great investors, something I've talked about in, in all of my books is, is tilting probability in our favor. 
we have to give up on the idea that we're ever going to do exactly the right thing because we just don't know. We're not that good. We don't have that much foresight. But what we can do is tilt probability in our favor. And I mean, this is what Vegas does, right? I mean, many of these card games in Vegas, you look at something like blackjack, you know, you're going to win 48, 47, 48% of the time if you're the if, if you're a player. But the dealer is going to win 52, 53% of the time. And that slight edge pays for a lot of fancy buildings and a lot of water fountains in Las Vegas. As investors, we want to look at the probabilities and tilt probability in our favor. So when it comes down to that lump sum versus sort of that, that monthly uh, annuitized income type thing, we got to look at the probabilities and then just sort of embrace the uncertainty. But the best we can do as, is look at probability and try and tilt it in our favor. Yeah, I love that example of the casino and tilting probability in your favor because I have people come in all the time and they'll ask me, well, they won't ask me because they just they just say it kind of flippantly of, well, if I wait on Social Security or if I do this, you know, what are the odds it'll it'll actually work out? I'll say, wonderful, let's find out the odds because we can find out the odds uh, yeah. quite simply. And so we make sure that we look up the odds. Okay, well, the odds are actually 85%. What would you like to do? <laughs> you know, And the odds are in your favor. It's amazing. You can't walk into the casino and get odds in your favor, but you can walk into the social security office. You can walk into the pension office. You know, There's a lot of things that you can do with very high odds. And my encouragement is do the math, probably follow the math, and it doesn't mean it'll work out all the time, but like you said, I'm going to start using that tilt to the probabilities in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's so tough about it from a human perspective is that we're so drawn in by narrative. And so you think about something like Shark Week. We're all scared of sharks, even though there's a one in 300 million chance of getting bit by a shark because there's Shark Week and there's Jaws and there's all these narratives that show like, hey, this can happen to you. And those narratives are very vivid. Well, you've got a one in three chance of having pre-diabetes, but since there's no diabetes week <laughs> and, you know, thinking about a lifetime of like poor nutrition and exercise and whatever that leads to pre-diabetes or diabetes is not as vivid. It's not as sexy a story. And so even though the risk of something like getting diabetes is much greater than getting bit by a shark, we're more scared of the shark because the story is more vivid. The same thing is true with a 400,000 versus the 2000. The, the story where I miss out on a bunch of money because I die young, that's a very vivid story. The story where I'm a little uncomfortable when I'm 95 because I took a lump sum and bought a boat rather than stuck around for the check, that's not quite as sexy or dramatic. And so it's tough to do, but we've got to tilt that probability in our favor and sort of ignore these lurid stories. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being on the kind of leading edge of getting investors and advisors. You talk a lot to the advisors too, mm -hmm. uh, of the psychology of wealth, the psychology of money. I was a physics major in college and I became a financial advisor about 20 years ago. And I kind of thought my job was just to get the answer and then prescribe the answer. And I realized quickly over time that I should have taken more psychology classes in college because it's really more like I'm the guide. Let's guide people through the idea of making decisions. And my wife's a counselor, she's mm. a school counselor. And I learned from her this idea called motivational interviewing, mm. where if it's my job to do uh, help people make good decisions, I need to learn how to guide people through decision-making. And so I've 
taken many courses, uh, many trainings on motivational interviewing. And I tell you, that's been some of the best value to my clients. Of they, they walk in and they have, you know, do I do A or B? Well, let's talk it through and let's have them make the decision A or B. Because if I prescribe the answer to them, just like the doctor might be prescribing the answer of here's how you solve the pre-diabetes, they're a lot more likely to actually go through and make the decision and follow through on the decision if they have come to that conclusion on their own. Yeah, so the mo motivational interviewing is a is a wonderful uh, sort of bag of tricks that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. But the whole motivational interviewing enterprise is sort of underpinned by this idea of stages of change. And the fact that people, if they're pre-contemplative or just sort of in the early phases of contemplating making a change, you can't fast forward and push them, you know, straight to some major action. And this is sort of a core tenet of good behavior change, financial or otherwise. You know, it's it's how we fall down on all our New Year's resolutions, right? Like on, on January 1st, we're like, okay, I'm going to run a marathon this year, even though I haven't gotten off the couch in five. And, you know, January 1st, you, you run 10 miles. January 2nd, you wake up sore, you run five miles. And on January 3rd, you pulled a hammy and you don't do anything for the rest of the year again. I think it's important for us when preparing for retirement or, or trying to make any change to understand where we're at, to take that first step in the right direction and sort of incrementally work towards sort of that that optimal place we want to be and, and not get overwhelmed by the size of the task. Yeah, you get it. I'm going to throw a curveball at you and then let's talk about a couple bits of your book that I think people need to hear. And we're going to make sure that people have links to the laws of wealth and the behavioral investor. And so you, you talk a lot about irrational investors and, and things like that. But I'm curious, what do you do that's irrational? I, I got my answer. I'll give you my answer too. But uh, what do you do that's uh, irrational? Yeah, so I um, I do all, all the bad things. So <laughs> I, I sort of identified um, four sort of primary behavioral errors in my book. And I mean, I'm, I'm prone to all of them, some more than others. But the, the four that I talk about in the book are ego, which is sort of the various forms of overconfidence, uh, emotion, which is just what it sounds like, attention, which is sort of paying attention to the news and sort of attending to things that are, are, are loud over things that are likely. And then the last one is conservatism. So for me, the two biggest ones, and, and they're seemingly contradictory to some folks, I'm way conservative. I'm like too, too conservative and, and sort of risk averse and, and fearful. So that's one mistake that I make. And then the other one is I can be sort of overconfident. And so for me, the, the way around that is I work with an advisor. I, um, I passed the series 65. I, you know, I could be an advisor if I wanted to, I've written three books about, you know, three, three books about finance. I, you know, pretty, pretty well respected in the industry. And yet I let someone else manage my money because I know when it comes to my own behavior. Like I can tell you what to do with your money, but when it comes to me and my money, I'm just as fallible and as silly and stupid as, as the next person. And so for me, the, the sort of the, the thing I've put in place as an impediment to my being my own worst enemy by, by virtue of being egotistical and, and too risk averse is I just let someone else do it. Yeah. Well, my, my irrational experience, I guess, is I, I lease a car. 
and you know you read anything dave rams anything leasing cars the worst thing in the world so what's funny about it is i can rationalize it right because <laughs> that's what people do they make a decision and then they rationalize it logically afterwards. You know, my rationalization is, oh, it's easier for the business expenses being self-employed. And, you know, I, I do like having a newer car and, and this is a better deal than buying a new car. And so it's just, it's just funny. That's my, I was trying to think through what is my irrational thing? I, I think that might be it. But instantly I start rationalizing it because that's what people do. <laughs> it, it is. So this is a tricky, this is kind of a fine line to walk, but I do believe something. I think there are certain behavioral I think there are certain financial actions that are on paper suboptimal, but have a behavioral upside. So like the easiest example in my life was a few years ago, we paid our house off. And at the time you could get a mortgage for whatever, 2%. Crazy though. Yeah. So, I mean, I paid a house off at a time when you could get a 2% mortgage and you know, it's an expensive house. And so the, the opportunity cost of that that money that I put in my house was significant when you would think that you would get seven or 8% on a diversified portfolio, you know, over a long period of time. But for me, even though this, the, the math wasn't there psychologically, it's what it took for me to feel good, to sleep well at night and to take appropriate risk with the rest of my money. Like having a paid off house allowed me to take risk with the rest of my money to say, hey, look, what's the worst that could happen? I'm not going to be out on the street kind of thing. And so I do think there are from time to time, we all have these little quirks where it's like, hey, we can sin a little, right? Like if we're, if we're living a, a sort of above board, rational financial life in other places, there's places where it may be a little goofy or it may not make sense on the calculator. But if it helps you sleep at night and it helps you do other things with your money that are that are positive, I'm for it. Yeah, that's great. I was uh, thinking of our upcoming interview and I was uh, on a, a lake close by with some friends. My daughter's 11 year old friend, she's on a stand up paddleboard and she says, I'm usually overconfident and it sometimes ends in disaster. And I thought of you. <laughs> I thought. This is exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> what a great, what a great self-aware kid. That is yeah. a future, she's a, she's a future hedge fund manager, that one. Exactly. That was hilarious. That's great. Awesome. Well, speaking of um, people and, and things like that, one of your rules in the, in the laws of wealth is you are not special. Tell, tell us why people aren't special that are listening here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're listening, you're very average. So if one of the things that I think is important to, to own, to become a great behavioral investor is this, that you are susceptible to all of the same quirks and, and failings as the next person. So, you know, I talked earlier about our tendency to be overconfident. Uh, we know that men are more overconfident than women pretty dramatically, but, but that women are also overconfident. <clears throat> and there's a few specific forms of overconfidence. Uh, we think that we're smarter, better, faster, stronger than, than other people. We, whatever sort of is being measured, we think we're better at it than average. You know, in the laws of wealth, I cite this study. They interviewed 700 men and let's see. 94% uh, of them thought they were more athletic than average. 95% uh, of them thought they were friendlier than average. You know, it's just, it, it doesn't work that way. Like we don't all get to be the best. So we also though, it's not just us thinking that we're better than other people. 
We also, another form of overconfidence is, is us thinking we know more about the future than we actually do, like that the, the future is more predictable than it actually is. And then the third form of overconfidence is we feel that we are luckier than we are. Like we tend to think that, you know, you ask people like, will you get divorced or will you have cancer or these things that are like super, super common. You know, I mean, a divorce is like you got a one in two chance of having a divorce. Like you've got very, very high odds of having heart disease or cancer. Like if you live long enough and people vastly underrate the likelihood of, of something like a medical problem or, or a divorce. But then you ask people stuff like, will you win the lottery or, you know, will you whatever date the prom queen and people vastly overrate their, their confidence in this. So the the chapter on you're not special is again all about just trying to calibrate your expectations and understand that you're a lot like other people right assume you are just right in the middle of that bell curve and that if other people make dumb mistakes with their money that you are likely to make dumb mistakes you're not any more plugged into the future you're not any luckier you're not any smarter And once you sort of own those things, the paradox is once you own that you're not that great, you can start to be great by doing stuff like automating your investment process or working with a professional and doing all these things that can bring about great outcomes when you stop trying to pretend like you've got it all figured out yourself. Yeah. We tell people that you're better off trying to catch the market than trying to beat the market. It's almost like you win by not trying in that that area. But there are things and times you need to make some decisions. And I want to finish out with some advice you have in there. A term called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. What can people do to avoid some bad decisions? Yeah, so the HALT acronym I stole from the the 12-step programs. When I was a a graduate student, we got permission to, to sort of observe some Overeaters Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, AA, different different 12-step meetings. And they were really wonderful. You know, they were really like people helping people. And, and one of the things that I learned in those meetings was this HALT acronym, which is, you know, these are people in, these are people in recovery from, from various addictions. And they're saying, if you're in a heightened emotional state, hunger, anger, loneliness, tired, but it could be, you know, a hundred other sort sort of forms of emotional extremes. This is not the time to make a big decision. And, and we know that's true of investing too. If you're super scared about the market, you should probably do nothing. If you're super excited about an investment option, you should probably do nothing because good investing is is boring. You know, good investing is is catching the market, like you said, and not trying to beat it. And so people should just know that if they're too greedy, if they're too fearful, if they're too excited, all of these things are actually counter signals that should suggest to you that it may be time to take a pause uh, because the emotional state that we're in really colors our perception of risk. People who are in a bad mood or fearful, sad, depressed, whatever, tend to see risk everywhere. And people who are happy or euphoric or excited tend to not see any risk at all. And so both groups make poor financial decisions, sort of different sides of the same coin. And so emotional extremes are just no time to be making investment decisions. 
You got it. Let's uh, let's finish up with that one. That being the best tip for people is avoid the emotional extremes. I'm guessing what people ought to do is just just go ahead, eat a Snickers bar, and then give me a call about their finances, and we'll go from there. And of course, it's uh, it's lunchtime for both of us. Uh, we're both alone in a room talking on uh, over Zoom here, so we'll we'll avoid the uh, halt for the two of us and uh, get that fixed so we can move on to uh, to other things, I suppose. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming on. How should people look up and find information about about you and your work yeah if you like what we talked about today go check out the laws of wealth i think is going to be probably the best book for most people listening to this podcast i have a podcast called standard deviations uh, where we talk about money mind and meaning and i'm on linkedin and twitter and everywhere just daniel crosby phd Excellent. And we'll link to all those. And we love giving away books. We love reading here. So the first three people that email us at podcast at kylefp.com, K-E-I-L-F-P.com, email us and I'll get you out that Laws of Wealth book on us. Everyone else, go ahead and, uh, and buy it from, uh, from Amazon or, or your local bookseller, I suppose. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Daniel. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Revealed Podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit retirement-revealed.com to learn more. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal, accounting, or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For complete details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is a part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.